0: The scripture reading this morning will be from Matthew, chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or more witnesses every word would be established and if he refuses to hear them tell it to the church but if he refuses even to hear the church let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector assuredly i say to you whatever your blind Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two or you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the
1: midst of them. Hopefully you haven't forgotten that our theme verse or our theme this year is one and the verse from which we have built out that theme is Ephesians chapter 4 verses 4 through 5 where we are told there is one body and one spirit just as you're called to to the one hope that belongs to your call one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who is over all and through all and in all What really fascinates me about that verse is the fact that Paul decided to lead it off with one body. There's some deep theology in this verse, and I would have naturally probably started with one God, or or one faith, or or maybe even one baptism, but, but Paul chose to start with one body. And I think there is some significance to that, because... If you look at the writings of Paul throughout the New Testament, one of the biggest issues he has to deal with is unity in the body. One of the things he will talk about the most throughout his letters to churches is the importance of the church being one body. And I believe... That, that phraseology received first billing because unity has always been and will always be a much needed teaching in the church. If you go back to Mark chapter 9, you'll see Jesus have to confront his disciples for arguing over which one of them was the greatest. He will then have to criticize, or he will have to, conf- to correct them for criticizing a kingdom worker who was not following their specific group. And then he would have to warn them about the danger of negatively impacting the faith of a child. And after he's done all that, he arrives at verse 50 of Mark chapter 9, and he instructs his disciples to be at peace with one another. Now think about all of those issues that Jesus dealt with before he got to the be at peace with one another passage. All of those issues were a form of conflict. You had followers trying to upstage one another. You had followers trying to exclude one another. You had followers potentially harming another's faith. All of those issues in Mark chapter 9 are conflicts. And by the end of the chapter, his chief instruction is be at peace with one another. I think... I think Jesus wanted to explain in that passage that the life of a disciple is not meant to create conflict. The life of a disciple is meant to pursue peace. In fact, when you get to Romans chapter 14, and verse 17, it's there that Paul says that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy. It's as if he were to sum up what the kingdom of God is all about. It's all about righteousness, it's all about peace, and it's all about joy. And I think there might be a little bit of a mathematical equation going on, because if you're in pursuit of righteousness and you're in pursuit of peace, the byproduct is going to be joy. But oftentimes the peace component is the one that we struggle with the most. And so this morning I want to spend a little bit of time examining how it is That we can deal with conflict in such a way as to produce the peace that we're called to possess. And we're going to make it very simple today. Because the Bible basically outlines two methods we have for dealing with conflict in such a way as to produce peace. And the first of those is this. When conflict arises, you can overlook it. This is the the turn-the-other-cheek concept. Hence the reason I chose a chipmunk. So if you will turn to Matthew chapter 5 and read with me in context the the turn-the-other-cheek passage. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 42, where Jesus himself says, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone would forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus is addressing whether or not one should retaliate when wronged. Because Mosaic law permitted equal retribution. But Jesus says, I want to hold you to a higher standard. Now, before we go any further, we should clarify what Jesus is not saying in this passage. When he instructs us to turn the other cheek, when he instructs us to give the shirt off of our back, when he instructs us to go the extra mile, he's not saying that we should be silent when unrighteousness or social social injustice persists. In fact, God's expectation for the children of Israel is, according to Amos chapter 5 and verse 15 was that they would hate evil and love good and establish justice there's an expectation of god that we'll care about whether or not righteousness is pursued and we'll care about whether or not justice is pursued i mean think about jesus himself when he witnessed the infringement of the greedy vendors on the religious rights of gentile worshipers at the temple He took action. He wasn't silent. So Jesus is not saying, turn the other cheek, and meaning that we should be silent when unrighteousness or social injustice persists. Nor is he saying that we should allow ourselves to be unconditionally mistreated or abused. I mean, the apostle Paul, throughout the book of Acts, would use his Roman citizenship to assert his rights, When necessary. So, this is not an instruction for us to be somebody's doormat, to be walked all over. That's not what Jesus is saying either. So, what is Jesus saying? See, the instructions to turn the other cheek, to give the shirt off of our back, and to go the extra mile are his way of teaching us to be merciful. His objective is is for his disciples to be willing and prepared to react to some offenses with mercy and forgiveness rather than justice and fairness. Just a few verses later, Jesus presented the model prayer, which included that phrase, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And immediately after he gave the model prayer, Jesus elaborated on that one portion. Now think about that for a moment. This beautiful prayer that Jesus gives us as an example of how we ought to pray concludes and then Jesus offers his own personal commentary on one section. And he doesn't choose the section of thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He doesn't choose the section of let us not be led into temptation. No, the part he decides needs extra comment is the part on forgiveness. And so in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, Jesus has this to say, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So if I'm unwilling to forgive other people, that means that forgiveness may be withheld from me. Do you know what that makes this? That makes forgiveness a salvation issue. But we don't look at it that way. We don't view forgiveness as that impactful on our eternal salvation. Realize this, that when Jesus made this statement, He did not qualify conditions that must be met in order for forgiveness to be offered. He did not indicate that forgiveness must be preceded by an apology, penitent activity, or restitution. Now, that's not to say such actions on the part of the offender shouldn't occur. If you go to Matthew chapter 5, you go just a chapter earlier. Jesus is going to say, hey, if you're at the altar and you're prepared to offer a gift, but you realize your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go take care of that first. That was his way of saying, hey, if you've done something wrong, if you've wronged somebody, you need to take the necessary actions to repair the relationship. So even though Jesus didn't specify that an offender shouldn't engage in some qualifying conditions to... Receive forgiveness. There is evidence in the previous chapter that he expects that of us as Christians. And also notice that in this text, Jesus didn't indicate that forgiveness must be preceded, as I said, by an apology, penitent activity, or restitution but that's not to say that sins can be forgiven apart from such repentance. Luke chapter 17 and verse 3 says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he repents, forgive him. That's what you do when you're dealing with sin. You repent. But when Jesus is talking here about forgiveness, and yes, he uses the term trespasses here, this isn't just about forgiving people when they sin. It's also about forgiving people when they simply mess up. See, this lack of information ab- a- about repentance, this lack of information about penitent activity and restitution and apology, this lack of information about such things should serve as an indicator of the fact that when Jesus addressed this subject, he was focused on the reaction of the offended rather than the activity of the offender. This is about how you handle being wrong, not about how you handle having done wrong. He's focused on how one responds to being hurt or mistreated rather than how one responds to the presence of sin. Why is Jesus focused on that? I think it's because he wanted to ensure that his disciples modeled their reactions to being hurt and offended and wronged after the way he reacted to such situations. Throughout the New Testament, we're instructed to be merciful as our Father is merciful. Luke chapter 6 and verse 36. To forgive as the Lord forgave you. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13. And we have to remember that God initiated forgiveness toward us while we were still sinners and while we were enemies. So Jesus is implementing an expectation that as bearers of his name, we should extend the same mercy and forgiveness that was extended toward us by God to those who offend us whenever it is possible. So here's the point. If you can assume that the offense, that the wrong that happened, the issue, the problem, the conflict was a mistake, then forgive it immediately Overlook it. Before you jump to conclusions and initiate a conflict resolution process, ask yourself a few questions. Ask, was the offense out of character based on my knowledge of the person and based on my relationship with the person? Ask yourself, is it possible that I misunderstood what was said or done by the other person? Ask yourself, Are there any other factors that could have contributed to the offender's behavior? Is there something going on in their life that caused them to wrong me, to lash out at me, to do that to me, that I need to take into consideration? Is it possible for me just to forgive this and move on? You know why that's important? Because Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Take a moment to explore the possibility of immediate forgiveness, realizing that overlooking an offense is not a mark of weakness or naivety, but is an indicator of spiritual maturity. Good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. See, our problem is we ignore step one. We we, we don't think, oh, turning the other cheek, overlooking an offense is a possible solution to conflict. But it is, and it's the first one Jesus ever gave. However, there are times when you cannot just overlook an offense. If the offense constitutes sin on the part of the offender, it cannot simply be overlooked because there's an endangerment to the soul of the one who committed the offense. And in such instances, the offense needs to be addressed, and that's when our second strategy comes into play. When conflict arises, you can address it. But you need to use a very specific process. A process that Jesus gave us in Matthew chapter 18, which was our scripture reading a moment ago. Look at verse 15 through 17 with me once again. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, there are a couple things you need to notice about this instruction before we dive into it. First, you need to notice that the stipulation for this confrontation is sin. This is not a strategy for dealing with petty grievances or personal differences. Such issues should fall under the strategy mentioned in number one, to overlook it. This isn't about your, your, your petty issues. This isn't about your little squabbles. This isn't about the times that you are personally just upset with the way things are done and things aren't going your way. This is about addressing sin. Sin. It's also interesting to note that not every English translation has the phrase against you there in verse 15. In fact, if you were to read the New American Standard Version, it says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Some of the earliest biblical manuscripts don't have the phrase against you in the text. So, what does that mean? How does that impact this passage? It simply means that this may be a strategy for dealing with all sin, not just the sin that is against you. It is definitely a strategy for dealing with sin that is against you, but it may also be the strategy for dealing with any type of sin that arises within the brotherhood. So we need to be cognizant of that, that we are dealing with sin above all else. So the broadest context of this passage is a situation in which a fellow follower, a a baptized believer, a member of the Lord's body has sinned but has not repented. And the confrontation process that Jesus presented involves four steps. Step number one is a private conversation. Because verse 15 of Matthew 18 says, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. The first step for an individual member of the Lord's body is to confront their brother or sister privately about his or her sin. The problem is, We skip this step. This is the most frequently ignored step possibly in all of Scripture. Because many times we choose to consult a minister or an elder or a a, a Christian friend before we ever go to the person who sinned. These are the words of Christ and we ignore them. Maybe if we get this step correct, then the other steps won't be necessary. Maybe if we get this step correct, most of our conflicts will be resolved like that. Maybe if we get this step correct, we save a lot more souls. The first step is private conversation. And it's only when that step doesn't work when that step doesn't lead your brother or your sister to restoration, that it doesn't reconcile the relationship. It's only when it doesn't work that you go on to step two, which is sort of like a small group mediation. Matthew 18, verse 16 indicates that if the private conversation does not work, then you should take one or two others along with you. Now, the one or two others that you take with you shouldn't just be your two best friends who have your back, because that's not the objective. Two or three others that go with you are ones who are cognizant of the sin. The other people who are are involved in this are aware of the sin, and they're brought into this process only when the one-on-one conversation proves unsuccessful. See, multiple witnesses were a judicial requirement under Mosaic law, according to Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15. And the purpose of involving multiple witnesses is not to gang up on the sinner, but to provide protection for both parties. They protected the accused from false accusations since their involvement was intended to provide corroborating evidence so that the charges may be established. They also protected the confronter from accusations of lying. And so the the witnesses are individuals who can confirm what is said by the confronter and therefore prevent a he-said-she-said battle. There's also other benefits from involving two or three witnesses. The involvement of multiple witnesses may reveal the seriousness of the sin to the accused. They may provide a mediator between the two parties in the event that the sin falls into that against you category. And they may establish a support system for the confronted to assist with his or her spiritual recovery. There are many advantages and benefits to involving these other individuals when that one-on-one interaction doesn't work out. But the most important thing is to know that this isn't a gang-up opportunity. This is still a restoration process. And the involvement of others must be because they are aware of the issue that's being addressed. And if that small group mediation doesn't work, then Matthew chapter 18, verse 17, instructs us to tell it to the church. And so the third step is what I'm going to call congregational intervention. The church is primarily involved to bring about repentance. The goal of telling it to the church is not to move forward with disfellowship, but to motivate the erring brother or sister toward repentance through the admonition of many. Disciplinary action is only taken after the offender refuses to listen even to the church. So the ultimate goal of, of all three steps thus far is not to discipline, but to gain, to win your brother or sister who's engaged in some sort of sin. And if this congregational intervention step is unsuccessful, then the final step identified by Jesus at the end of verse 17 here is to let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now that's an interesting instruction. We know know that in that culture to a Jewish person, which is all of Jesus' disciples are Jewish individuals, So he's speaking to a Jewish audience when he says this, and we know that that from their vantage point, a tax collector and a Gentile were people you kept at a distance that you kept away from you. They were to be avoided. But at the same time, those disciples are witnessing Jesus befriend Gentiles and tax collectors, dining with Gentiles and tax collectors, ministering to Gentiles and tax collectors. So there's a combination of disassociation and compassion in Jesus' words. And they may be best understood in light of Paul's instructions, which appear in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where he instructs readers to not keep company with those who are idle, but he simultaneously instructs them to not count them as an enemy, but to admonish them as a brother. So it seems that the church is expected to create... Some distance from the individual who refuses to repent, but it's not expected to give up on restoring him or her. Now, here's the beauty of this whole process it involves as few people as possible throughout the steps, and that can result in quicker and easier resolutions. But it also involves as many people as is necessary, which can promote accountability. And sound judgment. The ultimate objective of this process, as I've already mentioned, is to gain or restore the one who has sinned. And so when it comes to, to conflict, when it comes to conflict that has sin at its core, this is the step that we're given, the strategy, I should say, that we're given to deal with that conflict. And so at this point, we've got two strategies. Both given by Jesus. We can overlook or we can address. But there's one thing we cannot do, and it's one thing we like to do. We cannot avoid conflict. Many of us find avoidance comfortable. Like the gazelle who's being hunted by the lion, we choose to flee rather than face conflict. And we are not alone in utilizing avoidance. Jonah ran away when he was conflicted about the Nineveh assignment. He did not want the Assyrians to receive God's mercy because he hated them. And that's evident from the temper tantrum he threw when God spared the city there in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2 through 3. So instead of dealing with his personal conflict, Jonah avoided the assignment by fleeing to Tarshish, which was as far in the opposite direction of Nineveh as one could possibly go. What he didn't realize is that his avoidance of this mission placed him in opposition to God. He created a new conflict when he fled to Tarshish. And the lesson for us to learn from Jonah is that although avoidance may be the most comfortable response when it comes to conflict, it is not an acceptable Christian response. Because Jesus instructed both the offender and the offended to pursue reconciliation when conflict arises. See, you can go over to Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24, and there you'll see that the instruction is for, for you if your brother has something against you for you. To go and be reconciled to your brother. And then in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, which we were just looking at, we're instructed that if your brother sins against you. So Matthew chapter 5 is hey, you're the one who's caused the offense. So you go initiate reconciliation. Matthew chapter 18 is you're the one who's been offended. So you go initiate the reconciliation. The point is that no matter what side of any conflict you're on, you have the responsibility to initiate the peace process. You have the responsibility to engage the other for the purpose of reconciliation. Regardless of whether you're the offended or the offender, Jesus indicates that your responsibility is to be in pursuit of a resolution rather than to avoid it. And this is supported by the fact that the New Testament authors consistently instruct Christians to be advocates of peace. You can go to Romans chapter 12, verse 18. It says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all or live peaceably with all. Romans chapter 14 and verse 19 says, So let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Second Corinthians, oh, no, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 13 says, Be at peace among yourselves. Second Corinthians chapter 13 verse 11 says, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14 calls on us to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And the point is that you cannot avoid dealing with conflict because you have been summoned by God to be a peacemaker. Remember, it's Romans 14 verse 17 that says the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy. If you want to be a part of that kingdom... You have to be a part of that peace making process as well. If God's kingdom is peace oriented, then why do we have so many conflicts within it? James kind of addresses that in his letter in the fourth chapter, in the third verse. He says that the reason we have Quarrels and fights is because we have competing passions In other words conflicts arise because we are emphasizing our personal many kingdoms Over God's eternal kingdom When kingdoms other than gods are prioritized Conflict is inevitable That means that conflict prevention boils down to kingdom selection I think that's why James called on his readers in the fourth chapter to submit to God in verse 7, to draw near to God in verse 8, and to humble themselves before God in verse 10. Because James's antidote for conflict is for Christians to pledge their allegiance to the only kingdom that matters. And I think our solar system helps us understand this. At this very moment, we reside on a planet that is hurtling through space at a speed of 67,000 miles per hour. Meanwhile, eight other planetary objects of varying sizes and traveling at varying speeds are doing the very same thing all around us. Yet we're not afraid of colliding with any one of them. We're not afraid of that conflict. Why? Why? Because we understand that all of the planets in our solar system are orbiting around a single object. A fixed object in the cosmos is the centerpiece, is the focus of everything that every planet is doing. The planets aren't just following their own paths. They're subject to the gravitational influence of the sun. The earth is... And its companion planets all have a common allegiance to the sun. And that common allegiance prevents collisions. In like fashion, when all of God's people surrender to his will, then collisions between them are avoidable. Because in surrendering to his will, we choose to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. And in surrendering to his will, we look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. So if we want to eliminate conflict, then we have to begin by surrendering to the influence of the one and only son. This morning, it may be that you're letting your will and your kingdom take precedence over His. This morning, it may be that you're dealing with a conflict that should have been resolved already. This morning, it may be that you are an offender or you are offended by someone else in the church. This morning, it may be that you need to give forgiveness or seek forgiveness. This morning it may be that you need to be a peacemaker. This morning it may be that you need to take this opportunity to respond to the Lord's invitation while together we stand and sing. (laughs)
0: We sing, we sing,